Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Let me invite you to open up in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. If you don't have your Bible with you, there should be a hardcover black one underneath the chair in the row in front of you. Again, we'll be in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17 this morning. Now, throughout Advent and then these first few weeks of January, we've been looking through the first few chapters of Matthew's gospel. And so I want to remind you kind of where we've been so far. So we've looked at the genealogy of Jesus, tracing the royal line of Christ from Abraham to David, and then to the time in exile, and then finally we get to Jesus. And then you'll remember the visit of the wise men after the birth of Christ, and they came and worshipped Christ as the one true king. After that, you know, uh, we had the flight to Egypt, right? When Herod the king had this terrible action of killing all the newborn babies in Bethlehem. And then last week we looked together at the ministry of John the Baptist out in the wilderness, how he was sent by God to preach a gospel of true repentance, calling people to turn from their sins and turn towards God. There's also a gospel of repentance that condemned those who refused to repent. Well, our text this week takes place in the same context as last week's sermon. John the Baptist, is he's still out in the wilderness. He's still preaching a, a, a gospel of repentance. He's still baptizing those who come forward with true repentance. He's already condemned the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and then Jesus himself comes forward to be baptized. You know, in contrast with the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the leaders of the day who came forth with hypocrisy and judgment, Jesus came forth with humility to be baptized by John the Baptist. So let's read this account of Christ's baptism from Matthew chapter 3. I'll be reading verses 13 to 17. Would you hear now the word of the Lord? Take heed how you listen. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love for our good. Now this morning we're going to look at this text under three headings. We have the importance of baptism, the fulfillment of all righteousness, and the voice from heaven. So let's begin with the importance of baptism. Now, in the Gospel, in the gospel of Matthew, you know, he, he tells us about Jesus' whereabouts way earlier in his life. Where after Herod, that terrible king, had died, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and telling him to leave Egypt and head back towards Jerusalem and take Jesus and the child's mother with him. And then it says this in Matthew 2.22, But when he heard, when he, Joseph, heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he returned and withdrew, or sorry, he, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And then from that point onward, Matthew doesn't give us any further details about Jesus' whereabouts. The Gospel of Luke, however, gives us one brief story of when Jesus visited the temple in Jerusalem and sat under the teaching of the rabbis there. But besides that, the only other thing that we can say for sure about Jesus' childhood is that he never once sinned. 
Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, never once sinned throughout his life. And so, parents, I want you to realize what that means. That means that Mary and Joseph got to parent a teenager who didn't sin. Sounds pretty great to me. Now, this, this will be important later on, but I want to lay the groundwork now that we know from throughout Scripture that Jesus actually never sinned. In his childhood, in his teenage years, and in his adult life, he lived without sin. We know this from verses like 2 Corinthians 5.21 that say that he was, that say that he knew no sin. Or Hebrews 4.15 that says that he was entirely without sin. So we know that he never once sinned. He never rebelled against his parents. He never rebelled against God. And he perfectly fulfilled the law of God without error. He had perfect obedience. But that's all we know about Jesus' upbringing until we get to Matthew 3.13. Matthew writes this, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. So from his hometown of Nazareth in Galilee, Jesus came to the Jordan River with the expressed intention of being baptized. Now you need to contrast that with the Pharisees and the Sadducees that we saw last week. Right? It says this about them in verse 7. But when, many, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So these Pharisees and Sadducees, they came to investigate John's baptism. And John immediately called them out for their hypocrisy and for their refusal to repent. They came not to repent and not to be baptized, but to investigate to judge, and, and to really assert their superiority over those commoners. But how is it that Jesus comes? He comes with all humility to be baptized by John the Baptist. In a moment, we'll consider more deeply what the baptism of Christ actually tells us. But for now, I want you to simply note this. Jesus himself was baptized. And if Jesus himself came forward to be baptized then baptism must be of great importance for us as Christians. Now, yes, the, the, you know, the practice of baptism that we do in our churches today is quite different than the baptism that happened to Christ in a number of ways. We'll, we'll get to that later. But simply put, we would do well to take baptism more seriously. Let me read this quote that comes from 19th century Pastor uh, J.C. Ryle. He wrote this, We should notice in these verses the honor placed on the sacrament of baptism. A sacrament which the Lord Jesus himself partook is not to be lightly esteemed. So let's take a few moments to highly esteem baptism. Let's remember that all this sacrament means for those who truly repent of their sins and are baptized into Christ. Remember for a moment that baptism is a sign and seal of God's promises to us. When a person is baptized with water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit... What's represented in that moment is that person's union with Christ, or that person's engrafting into Christ. You can think of a vineyard worker who takes a, who takes a vine and, and engrafts it into a branch. So too does baptism mark our engrafting into Christ. It marks out for the world our adoption into God's family. We would do well to also remember that the water in baptism represents us being washed by the blood of Christ. That his sacrifice on the cross, it really does wash away the guilt of our sin. Both the actual sins that you and I commit, as well as the sin guilt that we inherit from our father Adam. 
And so in our baptisms, we're washed away of that guilt. We would also do well to remember that the efficacy of baptism is not tied to the moment when it occurs. There are many people who come to know Christ at one point, but for some reason or another, they aren't baptized until later in life. Or conversely, we know of many people who were baptized at one point and then don't receive Christ as their Savior until later in life. This was my story. I was baptized as an infant in the First Presbyterian Church in Libertyville, Illinois. But it wasn't until 15 years after my baptism that I really heard the gospel and believed upon Christ for my salvation. You know, in God's perfect timing, he works the grace of baptism into our lives as he sees fit. And so with all this in mind, I want to offer up three, uh, three application points here. You know, if we're going to take baptism seriously and really appreciate the fact that Christ himself was baptized, then let me offer up these three points. First is this, be baptized. If you have not yet, or if you have rather, if you have believed upon Christ for your salvation, then you really ought to be baptized. At the very end of Matthew's gospel in Matthew 28, Jesus gives this command. He says to his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus' disciples were supposed to go throughout the world and proclaim the gospel to the nations. And those who received Christ were supposed to be baptized. So if you've trusted in Christ as your Savior and you've not yet been baptized, either when you were an infant or as an adult, then you really ought to do so. You know, in a few weeks we have our next Meet CPC class. That would be a great step to take, to attend that class in moving towards being baptized and becoming a member of our church. So let me encourage you to sign up for that and to, to consider being baptized if you haven't already. Okay, second application point is to pray for those who've been baptized recently. So remember that, that you know, the grace given in baptism isn't necessarily tied to the moment when it actually occurs. This, of course, is true for infants who are baptized but then don't come to understand and believe in the gospel until later in life. So we should pray for them, just as we should pray for adults who join the church and are baptized. So the next, the next time that we have someone baptized, either an infant or adult, I, I, would, I would encourage you to be diligent to pray for that person, to pray for the Holy Spirit to work in their hearts and to bring about sanctification in their lives. Now, here's one thing that my family does that we found really helpful, and it might be for you as well, is that, you know, whenever we have people join the church and get baptized, we have that insert in the bulletin with their pictures and a little short biography about them. So we take that home with us, and then throughout our times of family worship in the weeks to come, we take time to pray for each of those people by name. And we especially pray for those who were baptized as they joined the church. And so last month when Marhos and Ed Marie were baptized, we prayed for them by name during our times of family worship. Maybe you'd consider doing the same. Okay, third point of application here is that is one that I'll label improve your baptism. Now that phrase, improve your baptism, comes to us from the Westminster Larger Catechism question 167. I won't read the whole answer right now, but it really is worthy of your consideration. I know I gave you similar homework last week from the Shorter Catechism, but I really would encourage you this afternoon to go read the Larger Catechism question 167. It is so helpful, so beneficial for us. But it, it mentions this idea of improving your baptism, meaning that we are to regularly remember our own baptism and remember all that it symbolizes and let that encourage us when we need encouragement. 
When we're tempted into sin, we ought to improve our baptism, meaning we should remember that we have been baptized, that we've been washed free from the guilt of our sin, and that Christ has given us his Holy Spirit to help us walk in newness of life. When you're discouraged in your faith, improving your baptism might look like calling to mind your union with Christ and really preaching to yourself about that. That you've been grafted into Christ like a branch into a vine. So draw your strength from Christ and remember his promises to you. That's what it means to improve your baptism. So be baptized if you haven't. Pray for those who've been baptized recently and improve your baptism. This is just some of the ways that we can more highly esteem and really appreciate all that baptism means. All of this we should do because Christ himself was baptized. But remember what I said earlier. There's a number of ways in which our baptism and Christ's baptism are are different. You and I are baptized for the remission of sins. But when Christ came forward for baptism, he did so as one who is entirely without sin. He didn't need to be baptized for repentance because he had no sins of which to repent from. So why did Christ actually need to be baptized? This is a good question. Let's consider it with our second heading, the fulfillment of all righteousness. Read verse 14 again with me. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? So at some point while John is out ministering in the wilderness, Jesus makes his way there with a specific purpose to be baptized. And when he does so, when he arrives on the scene, John is understandably confused. John knows that he's a sinner. Along with everyone else who comes forward for baptism, he's a sinner who needs to repent of his sin and be forgiven. And then in comes Jesus, the sinless, perfect, second person of the Trinity made incarnate. You know, just a few verses earlier, John had said that he's not even worthy to, un- to carry Jesus' sandals. And now Jesus wants him to, be, to baptize him? From John's perspective, this is 100% flipped from what it should be. Jesus had never sinned. Jesus had nothing to repent from. If anything, Jesus should be the one baptizing John, not the other way around. But look at verse 15. But Jesus answered him saying, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, meaning then John baptized him. So what's going on here? In what way would Jesus being baptized fulfill all righteousness? Well, simply put, Jesus came forth to be baptized in order to identify with his people. In being baptized, Jesus is identifying with us and bearing our iniquities on himself. This actually makes sense when you consider kind of the larger context of the first few chapters of Matthew. All along, Matthew has been helping us to see the parallels between Jesus and the Israelites in the Old Testament. Recall how in Matthew chapter 2, Jesus was taken as a young child down to Egypt. King Herod was about to slaughter all the young boys born in Bethlehem, so the Lord had sent an angel to Joseph and, and had him escape the coming wrath by fleeing to Egypt. Well, you'll recall a, a parallel situation happened to the Israelites in the second half of the book of Exodus, when through God's providence, Jacob and his 12 sons were brought down to Egypt in order to avoid the coming devastating famine that was striking their land. So in heading to Egypt to to escape certain danger, even as a toddler, Jesus is identifying with his people. 
Then recall the story of the Exodus, where God brought the, um, the, the Israelites out of Egypt and across the waters of the Red Sea into the wilderness. In the same way, there's a sense in which Jesus passes through the rushing waters as he's baptized. And then looking forward to Matthew chapter 4, we see yet another parallel. That after the Israelites were led across on dry land through the Red Sea, they entered into the wilderness where they fell into temptation. And they, re, they, they failed to resist that temptation. But after Jesus is baptized, he's brought out into the desert and he's tempted by Satan. And he resists that temptation perfectly. So all along, Matthew's been setting up this parallel between Jesus and Israel. And so we are meant to see in his baptism that Jesus is identifying himself with his people. This is what Paul would write later in 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Meaning that Jesus, who never once sinned, took the sins of his people upon himself. And oftentimes when we think of Jesus taking our sin upon himself, we think of the cross, which is of course true. Jesus stood as our perfect substitute on the cross. But we need to remember that his whole life was lived on our behalf. Every moment from his incarnation all the way up to his ascension in heaven was lived on our behalf. There's a quote from the late pastor R.C. Sproul that I think is especially helpful. He writes this, Jesus had no sin of which to repent. His entire ministry was vicarious. He was a substitute. He was killed on the cross, not for his sins, but for the sins of his people. That is what he meant when he said, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Even though he had no need for baptism, Jesus submitted to this rite as part of his corporate solidarity with his people. Do you see what this means? Do you get this? Jesus told John to perform this baptism so that he might stand in our place. Jesus was acting on our behalf. He went as our representative into those waters and entered baptism for us and as one of us. And his baptism is even more incredible when you consider again what Jesus said. He said that his baptism must be done so in order to fulfill all righteousness. In using that phrase, he was alluding to Isaiah chapter 53. And you re may remember that Isaiah 53 is that chapter of scripture where we find the description of the suffering servant. This chapter that predicts the work of Christ on behalf of sinners. Part of that chapter reads this, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So to put it simply, Jesus, as our suffering servant, was baptized and bore our iniquities and bore uh, the guilt of our sin for this purpose, that you and I might be counted as righteous. That you and I might be considered righteous in God's eyes, not because of any goodness in ourselves. Our sins and our rebellion against God have marked us as utterly unworthy, unrighteous, and undeserving of God's mercy. And yet Christ bore our iniquities on himself. He took our sins on himself so that we might be counted as righteous in God's eyes. Let me read the rest of that quote from 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
It was for our sake that God the Father sent God the Son, who knew no sin, who had no guilt of sin on him. God the Father sent him to take our sin upon himself. And he did all of this so that we might become the righteousness of God. So that when God looks on you, dear Christian, he doesn't see your sins. He doesn't see your failures. He doesn't see all the ways that you've rebelled against God's commands. Instead, he sees Christ's righteousness over you. So in his baptism, Jesus Christ is identifying with you. He was standing in your place, just as he would do one day on the cross. He was fulfilling perfect obedience so that he might credit that obedience to us by our faith in him. How wonderful is that? How wonderful is it that Christ did all of that work for his children? Now let's see what immediately happens after this baptism takes place. So this is our third heading, the voice from heaven. It says in verse 16 and 17, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And so John submits to Jesus' request and baptizes him in the Jordan River. Now notice for a moment what the text says and what it doesn't say. The original Greek text makes no mention of the mode of baptism. It doesn't mention whether Jesus was sprinkled with water or immersed. Rather, when it says that Jesus went up from the water, this, this does not refer to him being baptized by immersion into the water and then coming back up. Rather, it's a simple statement of him stepping out of the water. So from this text alone, you cannot make a strong argument in favor of baptism by sprinkling. You also can't make a strong argument in favor of baptism by immersion. Now, I would argue from passages like Numbers 8, Hebrews 9, and Acts 16 that it was most certainly baptism by sprinkling water upon Jesus. But you can't make that argument from our text. In any case, the, the, the more important thing that I want you to see is what happens actually after this baptism. This incredible moment where John the Baptist witnesses the heavens being opened up. He sees God the Father, or the Spirit of God descending on Jesus, and he hears this voice from heaven declaring Jesus as the beloved Son of the Father. In this moment, there's some real spiritual ramifications that you and I ought to consider. Now first, I want, I want you to notice that the three persons of the Trinity are present and on display in our text. Now we really are supposed to see and notice the Trinity here. Obviously, God the Son is the one being baptized, God the Spirit descends upon Christ like a dove, and God the Father speaks from heaven. This is incredibly important because it shows us that God's plan of salvation is the work of the three persons of the Trinity. That from eternity past, God has existed as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We know from Ephesians 1-4 that the Godhead, the three persons of the Trinity, had made a covenant to redeem a people for himself. That God, who had always existed as the three persons of the Trinity, had covenanted before the foundation of the world to create a people for his own possession. That God would be our God. That we would be his people. And this was all decided by the Godhead before anything and before anybody was created. 
Theologians call this eternal plan of salvation, they call it the, the covenant of redemption. Meaning that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit together made this covenant to rescue a people and redeem a people. And here in Christ's baptism, we see this covenant of redemption on full display. That the three persons of the Trinity are, they're in a sense making a, a public service announcement. That the ministry of Christ was the direct result of that covenant of redemption. So Christ's coming, his incarnation in the womb of the Virgin Mary, his baptism here by John the Baptist, and eventually his death on the cross, all of this is the result of the covenant of redemption enacted by the Trinity before the foundation of the world. So when we see the three persons of the Trinity together like this in our passage, we need to remember just how wonderful it is that God did this. How wonderful it is that God the Father gave God the Son to be our mediator and our redeemer. Then God the Son took on flesh and fulfilled all righteousness in our place. And God the Spirit bears witness that Christ is the Son of God and that he's accepted as the only mediator between God and man. The second thing I want you to notice here is that God the Father is declaring something incredible in this moment. Really, it's an incredible thing for God the Father to speak audibly from heaven, as he does in our passage. You know, God regularly spoke through the prophets in Scripture. Today, he speaks to us through his word. But before the baptism of Jesus, the last time that God the Father spoke audibly from heaven was all the way back in Exodus chapter 20. You remember Exodus chapter 20 is the giving of the Ten Commandments to the Israelite people in the wilderness. It says this in Exodus 20, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. After that moment, the next time that God speaks audibly from heaven is all the way in Christ's baptism. So we should really pay attention to what he's declaring in this moment. Look again at verse 17. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So in this pronouncement, God the Father is declaring that Jesus Christ truly is the Son of God. And he does so by combining two Old Testament texts together. Verse 17, this quote here, is a combination of both Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, and Isaiah 42, verse 1. So let's take each of these in turn briefly. Psalm 2, verse 7 says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The Psalm 2 was written as a royal psalm. It was meant to be sung by God's people on the coronation day of a new king of Israel. And that psalm is tied directly to God's promise from 2 Samuel 7, that a descendant from King David would reign on the throne of Israel forever. So in Christ's baptism, as God the Father declares, this is my beloved son, he's announcing to the world that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that promise. That Jesus Christ is the king who will reign on the throne of David forevermore. Then consider Isaiah 42. It says in verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So that verse from Isaiah describes Jesus as the one whom his soul delights. 
It describes Jesus as my servant. And a few chapters later in Isaiah 53, the prophet would again speak of that same servant, but call him the suffering servant. The suffering servant who would bring salvation to God's people by being crucified on their behalf. This servant with whom God the Father is well pleased, in whom God delights, is the very same one that God describes this way in Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so when God the Father declares that he is well pleased with Jesus at his baptism, he's saying something remarkably significant for you and I. God the Father, in these words, declares that Jesus Christ is the long-promised King and the long-promised Messiah on whom all the sins of the world would be laid. God the Father declares that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world who would carry out the work of redemption that was promised before the foundations of the world. And God the Father declares that he accepts Jesus Christ as the only mediator between God and man. Listen to how J.C. Ryle describes this. God the Father declares in these words that Jesus is the divine Savior, sealed and appointed from all eternity to carry out the work of redemption. He proclaims that he accepts him as the mediator between God and man. He publishes to the world that he is satisfied with him as the propitiation, the substitute, the ransom payer for the lost family of Adam and the head of the redeemed people. I hope you see what this means for you. This means that when Christ died on the cross, his death truly paid the penalty for all of the sins of those who would receive him as Lord. Meaning if you're in Christ, if you've trusted and believed upon Christ as your Savior, then he really is your Savior. He really is the mediator between you and God. He really is your substitute. He really died on Calvary's cross for your sins. I know there will be moments in our walks with Christ when we doubt this. There'll be moments where we really struggle and, and, and our faith is really shaken to the core and we wonder whether or not Christ actually died for us. Whether or not our sins have really been fully forgiven. When those moments arise, I urge you to remember Christ's baptism. Remember that God the Father is well pleased with Christ's sacrifice. Remember that God really does look upon you and sees Christ's righteousness. I'd also urge you to remember your own baptism. Remember that your baptism is a sign to you that Christ's blood has washed away all of the guilt of your sins. You really have been forgiven. You really have been welcomed into the family of God. And so I'll leave you with this encouragement. Remember today both Christ's baptism and your own baptism. Remember those things today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for the work that Christ has done for us and how he lived a perfect life of obedience to all of your commands. Thank you for his perfect righteousness that is credited to us by faith.
We praise you and thank you also for the work that Christ did for us on the cross in taking our penalty upon himself and forgiving us the debt that we have owed and in justifying us in God's eyes. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. And Lord, we ask you now that you would strengthen us in our faith today. Would you help each of us to improve our baptism? When we're doubting and unsure of your promises, cause us again to remember that your word never fails. When we're tempted into sin, please strengthen us to remember our identity as the children of God. Let that fuel our desire for repentance and obedience. Please do this today and throughout this week. Amen.